You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Uh, the Gospel of John, Gospel of John, chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 35. Before we read the text, I just want to remind you of the fact that there was once a very dark night in Jerusalem. It was a very dark moment in Israel's history. It was a dark moment for the prophet Isaiah because the king that had ruled for 52 years had just died. And that 52 years was characterized by mostly divine blessing. It was, a, it was all that the people knew. 52 years under the rule of a king is a long time. Four years can be a long time. But now, Uzziah is dead. And Isaiah, he enters the temple seeking uh, light in the midst of the darkness in his, uh, the darkness that his soul was, was feeling at the loss in the prospect of what may come. You don't know what's going to come. And what happened that night would determine the course of Isaiah's life. He recounts in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. It's interesting to me how when the earthly ministry of Jesus is drawing to a close, the Apostle John is thinking of Isaiah. All of this happens, of course, through the, the mystery of inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. But John realizes that in Isaiah's vision of the Lord in chapter 6 of Isaiah, this prophet in the, the 8th century before Christ, that he, when he walked into that temple, that day he saw the glory of Christ. And we know this because after John quotes him, he says, that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. His glory is Jesus' glory. But not only that, he adds, and he spoke of him. This is a moment in Isaiah. This moment in Isaiah is a pivotal moment in the Old Testament. And in that experience, we learn here that it was focused on what would happen in the life of the Messiah? It's fascinating, isn't it? That you have an experience that happened in the life of Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ. There's no way that he could have known this at the time. But all of this is pointing toward the Messiah and would later be quoted in reference to Jesus. Isaiah's world was a dark place a place where God was calling Isaiah to speak light into it. And Jesus, too, we have seen over and over, is the light in the midst of a dark world. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light in which Isaiah spoke of. 
It is fascinating. If you would, uh, turn your attention to John chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 35, if you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture together. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He was blinded in their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we walk through this text this morning, as we approach your word, I pray that we would do it in humility. Lord, I pray that we would be eager to to listen to you, that you would work in such a way that would lead us and to point us to truth, that would soften our hearts, that we might be people who do not reject, who aren't caught up in our own life, that we wouldn't love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, but we would understand what it means to love the glory of God because we would see Christ exalted here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish this and much, much more. And we pray all of this for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. may be seated. In verses 35 and 36 there, we see what really is Jesus' final public teaching, his final public appeal. No more after this is Jesus going to speak to the multitudes. He's not going to go preach in the temple. All of that is done. After this, after he said these words, we learn that he hid himself from them and he wouldn't be seen again publicly until his trial and crucifixion. So what we have here is really important, isn't it? The final public teaching of Jesus. And Jesus starts by saying, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. We have seen throughout the book of John that he uses light to describe Jesus. As we have talked about this before, light is a symbol of of God, and Jesus applies that symbol to himself. And when Jesus does this, he's ascribing to himself godness or deity. In Psalm 27, just one illustration, we read this, that the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
course, David didn't realize it at the time, but light, the light in which David was speaking here, the light of salvation that is found in the Lord is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the true light. When Jesus says that he is the light shining in a dark world, he is saying that he is the only way that God may be known, that he may be seen. Jesus is going to say in just a little while in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, men do not know God. Jesus comes, his light shines upon men, Now those who were in darkness have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus brings light into darkness. It is by following the light of Christ that those in the darkness are led to God. There's no way to be led out of spiritual darkness into a relationship with God other than Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to take just for a moment and think about the the tremendous privilege it was for these people of this time to have the light like they had it. They could see Jesus. They could walk with him. They could learn from him directly. Something that no doubt many took for granted as they didn't comprehend the significance of the moment. And now Jesus is warning them that his light is going to be taken away. It will only be with them for a little while longer. There is a sense of urgency in Jesus' voice, in his tone. These that were on the fence about him should trust him now to be saved. Believe in him now. Jesus said, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. I want you to notice something here, and and that is the way that John uses the word walk. It shouldn't be taken as sometimes we hear that word used as as an ethical or moral way of living. The Apostle Paul uses the word that way all the time. Paul, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 after a a lot of gospel truth in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he says this, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So to understand Ephesians 4.1, that verse, we must understand the first three chapters of Ephesians. The calling to which you have been called. And then he says, I want you to live or walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So Paul is urging his readers to live worthy of that. To to walk that way. right? To walk in a way that corresponds with what Christ has done in them. It would be easy to see the word walk here in John. And supply that same meaning. But the context here doesn't lend itself to that interpretation. So what Jesus is going for here is belief, not right living. Right living comes after that. And the way Paul uses the word walk illustrates that. Even it is associated with bearing fruit in one's life. In that Christ did this, therefore walk this way. 
Jesus isn't using the word walk that way. For Paul, the way one walks is a product of genuine faith. What John is doing here is contrasting darkness and light, and he is saying something that is a matter of of common sense in in a way. If we were to take this strictly literal, if we had a choice to walk to a certain place in the light where we could see, or in pure darkness where we couldn't see, which would you choose? Jesus clearly says, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Of course, Jesus here isn't giving advice on what time of day one should go to the grocery store. But he is saying that if if one doesn't walk or believe now, they run the risk of darkness overtaking them. You see that? Walk should be seen as belief And I think verse 36 makes this abundantly clear as Jesus is reiterating what he has already said and he's saying it differently, plainly. And he says, well, you have the light, believe the light. Why? Because if you don't believe, then you run the risk of darkness overtaking you. So what I want you to see here is the warning. That phrase, lest darkness overtake you. Believe now. Trust Christ now, lest darkness overtake you. That's a warning, isn't it? Jesus' final public plea is warning. Darkness might overtake you if you choose to continue to reject the Christ. The Pharisees and the Jews and others like like those in people in today's world who are opposing Jesus, did not understand what they were bringing on themselves. You see, to oppose the light is to bring on oneself greater darkness. Let me, listen, let me just share with you how Alexander McLaren says this. He says, Rejected light is the parent of the densest darkness. And the man who having the light does not trust it, piles around himself thick clouds of of obscurity and gloom, far more doleful and impenetrable than the twilight that glimmers around the men who have never known the daylight of revelation. Do you see what he's saying? There is something about the one who has access to the light, who hears the gospel, who knows the truth, who knows what Jesus did, who hears the invitation, but continues to reject it. That person seems to pile around themselves the densest gloom. The darkness that surrounds those who have never heard the gospel, who have no access to the light, to the gospel. He says that there's like a glimmer. There's twilight there. There's hope. But the one that continues to reject it, the the darkness around them just gets thicker and thicker and thicker. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were a, a prime example of this principle. The religious leaders knew Christ for some time. And perhaps at the beginning, when they first met him, they they just doubted his claims, right? He started to say that that he was the Messiah and he was giving these these. He's pointing people to himself, talking about how he is the one that people waited for. And they're, they're, they're doubting, you know, I don't think he's the one. He's not the right person. He's not fitting the bill. 
But over time, after they heard Jesus' plea, his invitation to, to come to him, to believe over and over, they knew. They knew he had been the one that had given sight to the blind. They didn't debate the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Even in the midst of all of that, they still rejected Jesus as the light. Spiritually speaking, they desired to remain in the darkness and it overtook them. And they became hard to the things of God and wanted to kill him. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the opportunity that we all find ourselves in. Most of us are born in a place with tremendous access to the gospel. Or the light of Christ, we could say. Of course, just because one lives in America and there are churches all over the place and people that call themselves Christian at every uh, corner and we're able to worship freely and we have all of this access, it doesn't mean that everyone has the same access to the light, does it? It is remarkable that there, how many people there are out there in our community that we assume know the gospel message but don't. But what I'm talking about here are those, though, that have heard the gospel message. Us. These that have understood the gospel, but for, but for some reason have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus. In other words, their encounter with Jesus, their encounter with the true light ended in rejection and therefore are in a much deeper darkness. If you are here, if you are listening and have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you must realize that every time that you're presented with the gospel of Jesus and every time that it's rejected, the darkness grows thicker. I used to have a pastor growing up that would say at the end of the service during the altar call that if you didn't respond to the gospel today, it was quite possible that the Lord would harden your heart to such a degree that you would never be able to come. I remember being scared. It was like he was saying, it's now or never. Or at least sometime in the near future, it might be never. This might be your last time to respond, he would say. I'm not trying to do that. I don't want to scare you. I don't want to give you some spiritual ultimatum. But I am saying that there is a reality here And that is that the more one rejects the light of Jesus, the more darkness overtakes you. Let me see if I can illustrate this in my own, just using my own story. I was raised in church. I heard the gospel countless times. I even responded to it a few times. I went forward, was baptized. But I look back on my life and I knew there was a God always But over and over when it came down to it and I was confronted with following the God that I knew was real or going my own way, like our text says at the end, being more concerned about myself, my own glory than the glory of God, I chose my own way. And there was always this this tension in my life growing up. I, I would know what I should do And I would end up doing what I wanted to do that wasn't what I should do. And like I said, looking back on all of this, I chose me 
over and over again. When I was a senior in high school, I was determined to do things right, to get serious about my faith. I went to college, started off well, but then that choice came up again in another way. My own glory, the glory of God. Me, my faith, that choice, and I chose me. And the darkness got so thick. And a couple years later, I remember knocking back a few with a friend one night. He was raised in a Christian home too. And I remember having this discussion about if God would ever forgive us or not for our actions. You can think about that. You're having, you're having this discussion. Is God ever going to forgive us or not? You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But if there is a chance that God will not forgive you and you're having that discussion and you know that God is real, why would you continue to do what you're doing? I did. It's because the darkness was so thick. You know, by the grace of God, it could have been a lot worse. But for me, eventually, God put me in a situation where I was hearing the gospel again. And by his grace alone, I grasped it. So I'm not saying that there is no hope for somebody that is in deep darkness. Someone who has continued to choose his own way. But I am saying, what I am saying is that when we continue to reject Christ, the darkness gets thicker and thicker and the odds diminish. In John 12, 36, Jesus' final public statement, and it's a, a statement that is both great and dreadful at the same time. It's great because of the invitation Well, you have the light, believe in the light. He is inviting people to come to him in faith. The people in this dark world that have been rejecting him, he's he's inviting them to, to come to him in faith. It's great that way. That those who come to him in faith will do so and become sons of light, not sons of darkness. I find it interesting that Paul, both in 1 Thessalonians 5.5 and Ephesians 5.8, there's a similar phrase. Paul says, children of light. These phrases are a reflection of the Hebrew, and it simply means one who takes on or reflects or displays the, the ethical qualities of the light of God, of Jesus. Notice the, the son of light isn't the light himself, but carries the qualities of the true light and is in essence reflecting that light back to its true source. In other words, a true son of the light will point the true light back to its source. Isn't that something? You become a light bearer. You bear the light. And it doesn't just reflect the light outward. It reflects the light upward. So that when people see you, They see the one who saved you. Notice the order of things, and we point this out often because it's so important. The invitation is to believe in the light, to put one's trust in Christ, and then one becomes a son or child of the light and reflects his glory. The order is important. This invitation here is good news, that for those in the darkness, those who are lost, 
Just notice the, the language in verse 35. Those that walk in the darkness do not know where they are going. That is that they are lost. Not just physically disorientated, but they're spiritually, these do not know where they are going. They're spiritually lost. And we need to ask the question here, what does it mean to be spiritually lost or in the darkness, to use John's language? I don't want to assume everybody knows or is thinking about this the same way. There are a number of analogies to use for the same thing, some biblical, some others that are not. But these illustrations always express the same thing, our separation from God, our true problem. The true problem that we have is that we're separated from God by our sin, and our true need is to have that remedied. For instance, sometimes we use the language of sinners. Jesus eats with sinners or tax collectors. And we speak of a sinner as one who does not inherit the kingdom of God. What is meant here is simply one who is spiritually separated from God by their sin. Lostness is similar. There's an analogy. Lostness and foundness, right? The, The one sheep that is lost and the shepherd goes and finds it. He's lost. He doesn't know where he's going. There's no hope. The lost coin, wandering in the darkness. We speak of people being lost. These are not Christians and they're spiritually separated from God because of their sin, because they have not placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be lost is to be separated from God, to not know where you're going spiritually, to be separated by our sin, by our unbelief. And the good news is that there is one, the good news is that one doesn't have to remain in the darkness. They do not need to be remain in that state of being separated from God by their sins. The invitation of Jesus is to come to him, the true light of the world. The Jesus of the scriptures. To believe in Jesus, to believe in him as he is presented in the word of God. Not believe in him as he's presented in our own design. The truth is, sin separates us from God. Sin puts us at odds with God because he is perfect He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. Just meaning that sin must be dealt with. It must be punished. The problem is that we are all lawbreakers. God is just. It means that he must rightly deal with those who break his commandments. Just as a good judge would never let a murderer go free. Let me put it this way in terms of God's love. The most loving thing that a judge, an earthly judge, could do is punish those who commit crime out of a love for others, society. I mean, we don't want thieves and murderers running around because some judge thinks it's the loving thing to do to release them on society, do we? Also, it is loving for the person who is guilty that they might be punished. The punishment ought to fit the crime in that the one who committed the crime should learn that there are consequences to your crime. This is why parents discipline their children. Parents discipline their children because they love them, not because they hate them. So it is in the the backdrop of people 
that are truly spiritually lost, that God sends his own son into the world with an invitation, an invitation to trust in him because he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live and he paid the debt that you and I deserve to pay. And a right standing before God is available to all those people who would place their faith and trust in him alone. You and I, we don't deserve that. Because of our actions, because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from God. And God is righteous, he is just, and sin must be dealt with. And either we will pay the, and bear the punishment of our own sin, or we will trust in Jesus who bore it on our account. I said that there was something great here, that is the good news, the invitation to believe. But there is also something dreadful here as well, and I want you to see that. And that is that Jesus departed after he said these things and he hid himself from them. Think about the significance of that for a moment. The problem with constantly rejecting Christ, like we've said, is that darkness gets thick and access to the gospel disappears. Right? Sin takes you to places where the gospel isn't proclaimed. It takes you away from the things of God, not toward it. Continually choosing your own way, you're going away, not toward. I'm not saying that there is no hope, but why would one want to toy with the justice of God? Why would one ever try the patience of God? I ask God this all the time. Why were you so patient with me? He would have been right to not. And the answer is grace. The undeserved favor of God. That, that he was in no way obligated to give me. He was no way obligated to be patient with me. It is an incredibly sad thing here that Jesus left. There was no more pleading with people. There was no more invitations. There was no more telling people that he was the light of the world. That he was spiritual sustenance. There was no more signs, no more miracles, no more feeding the thousands, no more opportunity. In fact, John gives such a a postscript on Jesus' final public message here. And he says in verse 37, "Although although he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. I mean, talk about the darkness of unbelief. It isn't as if Jesus left without opportunity. But at every turn, they rejected his message. They rejected the signs that pointed to who he claimed to be. Now, I would suggest that of those that rejected Jesus, those people that rejected him fell into at least two categories of people. Okay? There were what we would call active rejectors, right? The people that that look at Jesus, they looked at his claims, they rejected him. They said, this is what you say, I don't believe it, I'm going to walk away. They said that he was a dangerous man, they ultimately wanted to kill him, get rid of him, right? They looked at his claims, they actively rejected him, of course. We saw this with the religious leaders, they wanted him dead at the end. Better than one man dies for the people than the nation pays, right? That was their point. Of course, there are those today, there are people all around that have reasons or more accurately excuses for their unbelief. But 
there is another group of rejectors, and, and, I, and I really want the young people to listen to me. Not that this doesn't, just, it doesn't pertain to older people at all, but too, I think it pertains to the, particularly the young. There are a host of people that rejected Jesus in a more passive way. The invitation of Jesus has been to believe in him, and there is a lot of people that just didn't do that. They didn't give Jesus much thought at all. They just went around living their life. It wasn't that they were plotting to kill him, that they found his claims unfounded. They just didn't care. They were unconcerned about these things. They just went around about with their life, right? Their farm, their friends, their sports, all of these things were more important. They just were living their life and they didn't give Jesus thought at all. They rejected him passively, right? These are nominal Jews, nominal Christians. They're more concerned about living their life than they're about Jesus at all. There were a lot of people that just didn't give him or his claims attention. Oh, people are talking about Jesus. I'll just go to the shop. I would say that this is where a lot of young people are at today. A lot of young people within the church. And I, and I say this because this is who I was. These are exposed to the teachings of Jesus. They hear the gospel proclaimed week in and week out. They go to Sunday school. They sit through worship service. They hear the gospel because that's what we do on Sunday. And when it comes right down to it, Jesus is always on the back burner. We go through the motions now and perhaps someday we're going to take these things seriously. But now I'm going to live my life. I'm going to care about the things that kids care about. I'm going to care about the things... 20-somethings care about, that 40-somethings care about. Somebody asked you what you learned in Sunday school or worship service today, and you, you say, well, I don't know, but it was good. I guess. The, the reason that you don't know is that you were busy thinking about other things. You're writing notes to your friends, drawing pictures. I, I'm just saying that there is a passive way of rejecting Jesus, and we don't think about it that way. You can outright do it, or you can passively do it. And just let the invitation float by with no response. And if you continue to do that, be careful that you don't fall into that trap. We need to listen to Jesus' claims with urgency. You might not have the same opportunity later. The invitation to come to him in faith, trusting that he came to forgive you of your sin, to bring you into his family and change your life forever. It's interesting that not long before this, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 52, speaking of the crucifixion. Here in verse 38, John returned to that passage, the passing of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, and he uses it to highlight Isaiah's lament that the message of Jesus would be rejected. And then in verse 39, John tells us, therefore, they could not believe. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, well, does that really mean people could not believe? It does. And it seems as though John anticipates a little pushback to that statement. So he quotes from Isaiah again. This time he quotes from Isaiah 6. 
The passage that we read at the start of our service, John is comparing the the Jews of Jesus' day with the people in which Isaiah was commissioned to preach to. Now, I just want to close with this. I want you to to see the, the flow of the text here. John uses Isaiah 53 to show that Jesus' rejection was prophesied. And he said that because this was God's plan, that these indeed would not, could not believe. Then he quotes from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is commissioned to preach to those that would ultimately reject his message, or a majority of them would. Isaiah preached to an idolatrous generation, a people that were shaped by unbelief, And God sent him to preach judgment. Judgment is coming. Turn, repent. And God's sovereign purpose is that judgment would consist of people not believing. They would be hardened to the gospel. They couldn't believe. Their hearts were hard. And this was the judgment of God. I mean, some of this is a little bit difficult to grasp, but I want you to see what happens next. In verse 41, We learned that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In other words, Isaiah is speaking of the glory of Jesus. What is so spectacular is that Jesus comes into a world that is dying. A world that has no hope. A world that is spiritually dark. And he says, I am the light. That he is the root of all spiritual life. And if people want life, they need to come to him, believe in him, and people rejected him. Just as they rejected the word of God in Isaiah's day, they reject Jesus. But we also learn something else here in the midst of all of this in verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities. Notice how he words this. It's very interesting. Nevertheless, many of even the authorities believed in him. Now, I'm going to stop there. For a moment, because that sounds really positive. And I think there's a sense in which it is positive. What we learn here is that there were some that believed. In the midst of all of this, there is in this mass rejection of Christ, there is some who believe. And then we learn when we keep reading, and I'll just read it, but But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That last part isn't so positive, is it? In fact, it's really sad. It's heartbreaking. I think what we can glean here, though, is that there were some that believed in Jesus and were saved. There was a a remnant a small group here that believed in Jesus, that were saved. There were some that had imperfect faith, right? The the question comes up, how much faith does it take to save? What is saving faith? The answer is, the faith needs to be in the right object. And it sounds like there are some here that put their faith in Jesus, although it was imperfect, and were saved. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That is genuine saving faith, but it's imperfect. Still, there are others here who had some connection with Christ, but their faith was was not genuine. They were not saved. They they cared more about themselves than they did the things of God, the glory of God. They, They weren't saved. 
And I think there's, there's people here all along this spectrum. Just as there are today. There are those who believe in Jesus but would never confess it because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I mean, that kind of language here, speaking of faith in Christ, should prompt us to take a good hard look at ourselves, shouldn't it? And ask the question about the genuineness of our own faith. I mean, of course our faith is imperfect. We don't have perfect faith in Christ. But are we solely relying on and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for our salvation? That Christ saved us by his work? That his perfect righteousness was credited to us as our sin put on him? Are we trusting in that? Because if we are, that has tremendous implications, doesn't it? If that is true, then why would, not, why would one not confess it, no matter the cost? If we truly understand what Christ has done for us, then we would talk about it. We would confess it. We wouldn't be afraid not to. I think that there's a lot of people who are passively rejecting Jesus, but telling themselves they're good with God because of some experience they had at some point. They prayed a prayer, they signed a card, but their life now, what Jesus has done in their life isn't given much thought at all. They're just living their life. In fact, they're more concerned with the glory they get from people than God. And they're afraid to confess it. And church, I pray that's none of you. Put your hope in Christ. Trust the light. Get lost in the dark. Heed Jesus' final invitation. Come to him in faith. Become a child of the light, not lost in darkness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.